Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Matthew, looking um, at what are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. This week, we will look at the first four, and next week, Chris Bennett will preach on the next four Beatitudes. So that's where we are right now. And remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, the following may be familiar to some of you regarding how hotel entrepreneur Conrad Hilton used to give away a calling card. Back in the day, business cards were called calling cards. And he titled his calling card, Food for Thought. And on that card was printed the following. In 1923, a very important meeting was held at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending this meeting were nine of the world's most successful men. They were the president of the largest independent steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the president of the largest gas company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear in Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. Certainly, we must admit that here were gathered a group of the world's most successful men, at least men who had found the secrets of making money. 25 years later, in 1947, Let's see where these men are. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, died bankrupt and lived on borrowed money for five years before his death. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insel, died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign land. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, is now insane. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Kooten, 
died abroad, totally insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was recently released from federal prison. The president's cabinet member, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. The greatest bear in Wall Street, in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Kruger, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier. All three died of suicide. His card ended like this. Each of these men learned well the art of making money, but not one of them learned how to really live. Friends, that's quite a business card or a calling card, a very sobering reminder that, that wealth and riches and finances is not necessarily where life is found. Well, with Jesus, we're not nine of the world's most successful men. In fact, in many ways, in the eyes of the world, they were just the opposite. There were 12 of his disciples. And Jesus was going to make sure that they knew what life was really about. He was going to make sure they knew and understood well how to really live. And that's what we have. And the Beatitudes of the Lord Jesus Christ um, that he describes in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most famous sermon in the history of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to teach us what true life, true successful life, really looks like. What does the word Beatitude like literally mean? What is that? What does it actually mean? It actually means blessing. It means God's approval on, on something. Um, the Beatitudes are character qualities. They are qualities that receive God's approbation, his approval. They receive God's sanction, his blessing. It's what he commends. It's what he approves of. And interestingly, what we have here is Matthew presenting Jesus as a kind of new Moses, showing us the true depth and intention of the law. Now, we have seen for the past few weeks these, what we would call this kind of recapitulative method where Jesus is, is um, in a sense, viewed as a new Israel, whereas Old Testament Israel failed time and time again, Jesus is the new Israel who succeeds. He is come to get right everything that Old Testament Israel got wrong. We've seen that he's also the new Adam, the second Adam, where Adam failed, the first Adam, this second Adam will succeed. Well, this morning, Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. In the Old Testament, Moses presented the law of God where? On a mountainside, the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew points out, that he assumes a certain posture when he communicates the Beatitudes. Matthew 5.1 reads the posture that Jesus assumes. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Now, that wasn't just a position of comfort due to his extended teaching. By sitting down... We saw this last week when he taught in the temple at Nazareth. By sitting down, Jesus 
was associating himself with Moses' seat, like we find out later in Matthew, that when the teachers of the law sat down, quote, Matthew said, they assumed Moses' seat. They were teaching with Moses' authority. And by Matthew, including that detail, that Jesus sat down on the mountainside to teach, he is, in a sense, becoming the embodiment of Moses. He is showing the true depth and intention of the law. There are lots of threads that are being woven together. And he gives eight beatitudes, eight character qualities that God blesses and approves of and sanctions. Character qualities that the Lord wants to see instilled and embodied and grown all throughout our life. You know, if you're like me, from time to time, you have struggled with assurance of salvation. We've talked about this before. If you're like me at points in your life, perhaps when your head hits the pillow at night, sometimes you wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I really know the Lord? Or is my profession of faith only kind of an apparent profession of faith? Am I truly a saved Christian? And that's not an inappropriate question to ask from time to time. What we have in the Beatitudes, I think, is a helpful diagnostic tool as we sometimes struggle with assurance of salvation. You know, if we want to kind of try to diagnose and assess, do we really know the Lord? I think the Beatitudes are a tremendous diagnostic tool that we can gauge our heart against. Are these qualities being brought to bear in my life? Not perfectly, not in their totality, not in their fullness, but are these character qualities made manifest to some degree in my heart and life? Is there a sense in which I'm struggling to see these things brought to bear more and more? Great diagnostic tool, very convicting and humbling diagnostic tool. Let's look at the first one. The first beatitude, and I would argue these are all links in a chain. And the the chain starts here. If you don't have the first link, okay, then the other links will not necessarily follow. I would argue that the first link in this chain, poverty and spirit, is the most important of them all. Because if you have this, if this is really true of you, then the others will come along as well. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And I appreciate the way that Matthew qualifies what he means when he says blessed are the poor. He is saying blessed are the poor in spirit. It is a spiritual disposition. It's not as though the Lord Jesus is not concerned with the material poor or whatnot. He does show great concern for people who are disadvantaged uh, financially. But that's not what Matthew is talking about here. Or, or he correctly interprets what Jesus is addressing Poverty of spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I would argue that poverty of spirit is an acute or even visceral awareness and ownership of our sin. Okay, it's not a box that we check. Okay, it's not just like something that we just confess on paper. I love the words. It is an acute and a visceral awareness of our sin, okay? Um, 
I think it's best illustrated through one of Jesus's parables, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus gave these parables to give us, obviously, illustrations of what, of what something might, like this might look like. Allow me to read from that parable, from Luke 18, that displays, gives us a sense, something we can relate to in terms of poverty of spirit. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. He praised the Lord that he was not like that. He was not like those kinds of people. He says, or even like this tax collector, for I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, he also stood at a distance. But he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Like everything about the tax collector reinforced his poverty of spirit. So the Pharisee stood by himself because he didn't want to associate with anyone else. He didn't, he didn't feel like that he was on the level of those other people, so he stood by himself. The tax collector also stood by himself, ironically, because he did not feel like he was like those other people. He didn't feel like he was anywhere close to those other kind of people. He viewed himself to be much worse, much more sinful than the other people that were at the temple. You know, the tax collector... That was a very corrupt vocation within first century Israel. Oftentimes, tax collectors would collect far more than was their due. They would exploit their own people. They were a hated people group and category in first century Israel. And something had happened to this tax collector where he felt poverty of spirit. He was made aware of just how dark his heart really was. And so he wasn't comfortable worshiping with anyone else. He stood by himself. He beat his breast, okay? And his prayer said everything when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt totally overwhelmed at just how dark your heart can be? Have you ever felt convicted when you were you know, being judgmental of someone or, or felt convicted about certain thoughts that you had or things that you have done or things that you haven't done, your hypocrisy, your pride, your judgmentalism, things like that? Have you ever been overwhelmed with how dark your heart really is? That's what Jesus is getting at with poverty of spirit. It's someone who is overwhelmed and intimately acquainted with how far short they fall of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And if you have this link in the chain, if you experience true poverty of spirit, then by necessity you are going, going to mourn you're going to mourn over it and show deep sadness and contrition over it. And that's the next beatitude. 
in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So whereas poverty of spirit you might associate with feeling convicted of sin. You know, have you felt conviction over your sin? Another way of saying it is, have you felt the guilt of your sin? Have you felt ownership of that? Have, has that ever overwhelmed you? Okay? That's poverty of spirit. But a mournful spirit is to feel contrition for your sin, to feel deep remorse over your sin. To spiritually mourn is to experience a sense of deep sadness for your overall condition. Like you're like, I, you know, have you ever experienced like, I just cannot believe how dark my heart is. I just can't believe what a, what a sinner I am, what's going on in my heart. Those who mourn over their sin, they, they know it on a personal level. Again, it's not just a box being checked. But to mourn over your sin is for it to personally affect you. Perhaps my favorite parable to illustrate this in the whole Bible, Chris Bennett mentioned a couple weeks ago, comes from 2 Samuel 12, where for months... King David has remained hardened in his sin. He has slept with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed, okay, and for months he has not shown any sense whatsoever that he is contrite or remorseful or mourning over sin until a prophet of his day named Nathan came to him with a parable that I would like to read. And here's my proposition. Until your sin becomes personal to you, until your sin connects with you in visceral ways, you will not be motivated to repent of it. One of my favorite parables of the whole Bible comes in 2 Samuel 12 because it's so poignant and so powerful. And this is how we need to connect with our sin. So David, taking Bathsheba as, as his wife, had her husband killed in cold blood, showing no remorse, no mournfulness, David comes. I'm sorry, Nathan comes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, nothing at all, except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. A ewe lamb is a young female goat. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. In other words, it was like a member of the family. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it, in other words, slaughtered it, and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Notice David's response. Even though David was guilty of the same thing, and even worse, it says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely 
as Yahweh God Almighty lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul and I gave you all of Israel and Judah and I would have given you even more. And ultimately David says, as he was cut to the heart, I have sinned against the Lord, David says. And then he puts on mourning rites. What happened? How did he go from being hardened in his sin to being broken and showing a spirit of mourning? It's because his sin had become personal to him. It had become real to him in that moment in ways that it had not before. And unless that happens to us in terms of our sinfulness, we'll never get it. We'll never internalize it. We'll never personalize it. Like even now, um, an example in my own life of, of, of something being made personal. So my dad, as he ages, and now he's 87 years old, he calls me every single day. And we have the same conversation almost every single day. Um, and some days he doesn't remember the conversation that we had the day before. And we go through the same questions. And I would not be truthful if I, I did not say at times that I get exasperated and impatient. And um, sometimes I don't answer the call right when it comes. Um, but when I imagine, so I, I call my own son at college now. And he doesn't always answer the phone, okay? And that bothers me because that's wrong and disrespectful for him not to do that. My sophomore in high school won't even look at me. Um, but, you know, I, I know how much that means to me for my son to take my call and for me to hear his voice and hear how he's doing and what's going on. Okay, and it becomes personal to me, and it's convicting to me, and I mourn over how hard-hearted I can be sometimes uh, by not answering my father's call, and it changes me. It moves me to pick up that phone when he calls. Unless your sin becomes personal to you until you experience it and how awful it is and how heinous it is, you'll never be motivated to repent. The next link in the chain, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. People that have poverty of spirit, people who understand how dark their heart is, and they mourn over it, they will grow in meekness. What does it mean to be meek? If you do a word study of the Greek word, it's proutus. Okay, if you look at it, most often it is associated with a spirit of humility, but particularly a spirit of gentleness. A soft spirit, a gentle spirit. That's what describes the meek. Okay, you can still be, you know, um, a healthily ambitious person in your life and at the same time show a true spirit of meekness. For example, Paul 
when he is, in a sense, kind of threatening to come to the church at Corinth and, and um, set right some things that were wrong in Corinth, Paul writes, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of proutus, a spirit of gentleness? Should I come to you in a spirit of, of brusqueness and severity? What's the opposite of that? A softness, a kindness, a gentility. As you grow in the Christian life, are you growing in meekness, in softness? Being overwhelmed with the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Personalizing the gospel to yourself. You know, the more that you, like, are astounded that Jesus could forgive someone like you, the more that happens, the more you grow in that, the more meek you will become. It doesn't mean that you are a pushover, but it means that you are a soft place to land for people. There is a spirit of gentility because you have experienced the meekness and the love and the kindness of Jesus. This is a character quality that I need to grow in. And last but certainly not least, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's another parable that Jesus tells that I think exemplifies this so well. In Luke 7, Jesus tells a little parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. This is similar to the, to the parable that Jerry Bridges talks about in the beginning. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you are right in saying so. Jesus ends that section by saying, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And that's a truism in the Christian life. He who perceives himself forgiven much loves much. To the degree that you understand how much the grace of God has been brought to bear in your life, the degree to which you understand what the forgiveness of Jesus means for you, to the degree that you get that and own that and internalize that, will be how much you are motivated to hunger after righteousness and holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. The person who has poverty of spirit, who mourns over their sin, who demonstrates a spirit of meekness, you don't have to beat them over the head to seek after the Lord Jesus. In fact, you can't hold them back. To understand the gospel of Jesus Christ in a personal way is to grow in these beatitudes. May God give us the grace and mercy to show these kinds of characteristics in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you 
for your graciousness and your mercy and your loving kindness. Father, we thank you that you did not just leave us in our state of rebellion and hard-heartedness. Father, we thank you that you have communicated us to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that there is a remedy for our sin. Father, um, we pray that you would send to us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Father, give us a, a growing awareness of the darkness of our hearts so that we might see more and more our need for the Lord Jesus. For to grow in that is to grow in the Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.